Blog Talk Radio. and welcome to Travel Times Radio. Today, our topic is going to be looking at visiting living history sites. But before we do that, let's just take a moment and do a little housekeeping. First of all, if uh, you are wanting to call in and ask a question, you can sure do that. Either at one seven one, or I'm sorry, at seven one four two four two five two five three, or toll free one eight seven seven six three three nine three eight nine, and we're also uh, going to have a chat room open on this episode's webpage, and that is just open up now. So you can also come in and ask us questions that way, too. And coming up for our next episode is going to be one from the uh, regular Trendlebed Tales podcast. That's going to be episode 33, Adult Laura Ingalls Wilder Day. And that's going to be next Saturday, May 26, 2012, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central Time, 1 p.m. Mountain Time, and 12 p.m. Pacific Time. So I hope you will take this opportunity to, uh, to learn a little bit more about the event we hosted at Usher's Ferry. And I think that's about it for housekeeping. So, the topic today is living history. And it's one uh, that kind of uh, befuddles of some travelers. And that's why I think that we can help Um, people figuring out what's going on with a little bit of background information. Now, when they started to do living history, uh, or when they started to do historic sites to save historic buildings, which actually started fairly early in America, most of the time these would be uh, very static kind of exhibits. They would preserve the house, and it would be like frozen in a particular moment in time, and that would be it. Uh, you would have a guide in normal dress, and they would take you through and answer your questions and that sort of thing. But there really wasn't much in the way of making you feel like you really had stepped back into the past. Now, while there's um, history that goes back before this, in the 1920s, there got to be two kind of big projects 
uh, Colonial Williamsburg and uh, the Greenfield Village, which uh, Colonial Williamsburg was the Rockefellers and Colonial Willi and uh, the Greenfield Village was the Ford money. And they both put a lot of money not only into collecting objects, but into trying to collect skills and have people who had learned how to do things the old-fashioned way do a little bit of, of uh, demonstration. Uh, and basically, that got to be more in the way of costumed interpretation, which basically means you wore old-fashioned clothes, but you you uh, also you can call it third-person interpretation. So you're not talking about uh, things that you do yourself. You're talking about things they did, you're just dressed in the old-fashioned clothes. So, uh, for instance, if you were doing third person, you might say, they washed their clothes on Monday. Or you might say, uh, they wore four, level, or four petticoats under this kind of dress, or something like that. The next layer up, and this came on much later, it was coming out and really kind of gaining a good foothold in the 1970s uh, was first-person interpretation. And in first-person interpretation, uh, you're speaking as if you were a person who lived at that time. So instead of saying they were making hay or they would make hay like this, you'd say, I make hay like this. I wear four petticoats under the dress instead of they wore four petticoats under the dress. And basically you start, the person who's doing first person speaks as closely as possible as if they were someone who was alive at a different point in time. Uh, the top level of interpretation is immersion and in an immersion situation it isn't just the the interpreter the person who is on the staff or a volunteer who's talking as if they lived back then you yourself take on a role of a person who lived in that time and actually one room schools were a, a strong one room school museums were were early advocates of this because the most obvious thing in the world when you have students come into a one room school is to have them act as if they were students at the time. But there are much more complicated programs about that now. Uh, Connors Prairie has been a real uh, trendsetter in that regard. They have one program that is an immersion program where you become a slave or a slave catcher dealing with runaway slaves. And they have a storyline worked out and people come in and uh, get go through an orientation process and they act out the scenario on, on their museum grounds. And then they have a um, kind of debriefing session afterwards. And it, it is very intense for people. I think a slightly less intense program they also do at Connors Perry is a, an immersion program about the Civil War. So 
that's getting to be probably where the future, at, at least of the, where I think a lot of the future of uh, interpretation is heading. But uh, today, now activities. So I just kind of went through and tried to remember all the different living history activities that I have seen at various living history farms or living history town sites. So, so uh, you can uh, see people doing historic cooking. You see them doing canning and other types of food uh, preparation. Also at Connors Prairie, we were at a really great butchering day once where they went through the entire process of processing a, a hog that had been butchered. Uh, you see gardening quite often. Washing clothes is very popular. Blacksmithing is very popular. If there's a town, there's quite often a print shop, and they show running the presses and setting type, though they usually don't set a whole paper every day because it that is a lot of work, and they usually don't have the manpower to do it. Uh, hand sewing, sewing on a treadle sewing machine. Pharmacy uh, at Living History Farms in Des Moines, they have a great pharmacy and uh, go through actually making kind of ointments and concoctions and various things. Uh, plowing is a very popular activity for people to come and watch, and in fact, there are so many people who historically plow now, there are actually contests to see who is the best plower uh, or plowman. Haymaking is a very popular thing. Also at Living History Farms, they have a great haymaking program. They even have a hay elevator, and they do the whole thing with the hay fork and lifting it up in the barn. Really great, uh, all-inclusive program. They do all sorts of little things with horses, and uh, horse-drawn vehicles are very popular, and also horses just being put to work, like grinding uh, a mill and walking around that way. Uh, it can be something as simple as hand-stamping postcards. There's a couple places that you can actually go in and mail your postcards in the postcard on the, the in the historic village, and they will hand cancel your postcard. Um, you sometimes see them doing a meal where they will be eating a meal that was cooked uh, on the hearth or and whatever or on the stove, whatever building they're in. You see them uh, taking tea with the full. Uh, regalia and everything they would do. Hairstyling. I saw an absolutely great uh, living history thing down at Midwest um, Old Thrashers during their reunion event where they were actually, you know, uh, how many people have seen those hair curlers that go and get heated up in the chimney of the kerosene lamp? Well, they actually were using them, and it was kind of funny because clearly they hadn't really used them before, and the poor girl's hair was uh, uh, was starting to burn, and you could smell the burnt hair. Uh, so something to be careful with. Uh, medicine shows are quite popular if they have the uh, props that you need for it. Ironing, 
Apple cider is a big thing in the fall. Making rope has really taken a hit the last few years. And you'll see that on a lot of sites where they're making rope. Uh, then there's quite often animals around if it's a farm that they're taking care of. So you may see chickens or pigs or horses that are or oxen that are being taken care of, that are being worked. And it really brings a place to life. It, it, a farm just seems to have so much more activity and to really be a farm if it's got some animals. But uh, living history can actually go beyond that. For instance, the Model T that they that you can ride in at uh, at Greenfield Village uh, in Dearborn, Michigan, is I think a great example. So there's all sorts of activities going on, all sorts of things that you can do, all sorts of level of participation. But uh, what I wanted to mostly focus on today was first person because we really have come across some people who have issues with it. Um, the One of the places that they have out in uh, by the little bighorn is uh, the Custer's house. And uh, my cousin stopped there on a day they were doing first person. And she reacted very badly to it because she... Uh, didn't like it because they wouldn't answer her questions and she didn't like them. Um, well, she took it as lying to her because they were saying how it was. Uh, it really isn't lying, it's, but it is kind of a game. And if you're not really used to it, it's kind of uh, difficult to take in. So a good site with Living History that's doing first-person interpretation. Now, again, first-person interpretation is the one where you say, I am uh, working the treadle sewing machine, not they would work the treadle sewing machine. So a site with first-person has a good site, will have an orientation that will kind of tell you the rules. Because it's hard for people who don't know the rules to... Well, play along. It can be a lot. It, it can end up being a frustrating experience for both the interpreter and the visitor. So, hopefully, if you get to one, it will be a place that does an orientation. And probably the best place that I've been to that had an orientation like that is a very small site. You do not have to be a big site uh, to do first person. This was uh, historic Forestville, which is right outside of Spring Valley, Minnesota, in a state park. And they have like three or maybe four buildings there. And um, I think there were probably three staff members the time we were there. But they really were clear on what was going on, what you could expect, what you were expected to do, and it just was a very good orientation. Um, so that's something to look for if you're going to be a site that does first person. Uh, something else to be aware of is they may do first person just part of the time. For example, at Henry Field, uh, or I'm sorry, at Henry Ford, in Michigan, the Greenfield Village people, they have people who do first-person interpretation. They have people who do the Wright brothers. Uh, they have people who do Thomas Edison. 
uh, and I'm sure they've got other people there. Those are the ones we happened to to see the, the time we were there. But they don't do them all the time. They have sort of scheduled events, scheduled scenes, scheduled interpretations. And when you're coming in, you're given a schedule of when those are going to be during the day. So it's only during those specialized things that you get people saying, you know, I am, uh, instead of they are or they were. The other type of first-person interpretation would be a place like Connors Prairie, uh, which is... a big historic site uh, from the Eli uh, drug company money that originally set it up. And they do first person all the time. When you go through the gates into their historic village, every single person in there will act as if it's a different year than you think it is. Most of the area is 1836, and that was their original setup. They have added a Civil War area, which is a couple decades later. But um, I'm going to mostly stick with the 1836, because that's the one I've experienced. And um, what that means is when you go in, if somebody asks you, where you're from, and you say Iowa, they will have no idea what you're talking about because Iowa didn't exist as a a state in 1836. So then you, you have to try and come up with an answer. Now, the good news is, is this is something that is good at first person interpretation. They will help you. They're not trying to make you look stupid. They're just trying to get you in the mindset of what it was back then. And a lot of times where you're from and trying to get through that first kind of initial awkward question is sort of a clue to you to kind of alter your mindset. So you end up finally figuring out that it's the Wisconsin Territory, if you know a little history, or they may say on the frontier Uh, and talk about how long it took you to get there. And they are going to start uh, giving you the idea of how long travel would have taken in 1836. And it kind of goes from there. It can make it awkward when you have questions. Uh, For example, uh, there are... If you, for instance, were to meet somebody who was portraying Abraham Lincoln, and I don't really think Connors Prairie has one, but this is just an example, uh, that they were talking about Abraham Lincoln, and you said something about him uh, running for president. Now, this is 1836, not 1860, so they would have no clue what you were talking about. And they would act like they had no clue what you were talking about. And if you said something about him being assassinated, they would have no clue what you were talking about. Um, if you were asking about something 
about uh, on a more practical level, if you want to ask, uh, can I take your picture? They, a lot of times, will have no idea what you're talking about. The first time we went to Connors Perry, the people we dealt with were really had this great code worked out. And you'd say, uh, can can you take, do you mind if I take your picture? Because, you know, they're really going about their activities. You really feel like you're in somebody's home and you don't, you know, it kind of feels weird to just grab out a camera, though pretty much every Living History site, you really don't have to ask. But it comes up enough for them to, you know, they would said, oh, uh, and they had just come up with a little code for a camera, which was quick draw. So, oh, you mean do you want to take our image with a quick draw? Yes, that would be perfectly fine. So it can be hard to do um ask questions like that. Probably the most frustrating experience I ever had with somebody who was doing first person uh, was when I was uh, there, uh, when I was at a living history site as part of a conference of living history people. So I kind of thought they would figure out from the large, obvious name tag that I had on that I might have a little different questions and a little different expectations than the average visitor Uh, I wanted to know more about how they do things. So I was trying to ask how far they had to carry water because this is one thing that I find very ironic that most of the time uh, people who are reenacting cooking have to carry water farther than the people who were living in those houses would have had to do. So I wanted to know about where their water was and how they got it and that sort of thing. And the woman would not break character. She kept pointing to this pump, which I knew enough about pumps to know that it is absolutely a non-working pump. There's no way they got the water that they were using for washing dishes out of this pump. It was not a real pump. But she just kept insisting she'd gotten the water from there. And sometimes you will get in situations like that. Um, And I would never have asked that if there were other visitors around because you don't want to ruin it for, for them. But then I asked a lady in the next house, and then she got it and said, yeah, the, when we do this door cooking, we have to get the water from over here and answer it. So it can sometimes be a frustration, but I think it adds a real level of um, understanding to kind of break your mindset down a little bit, to open it up to what did people in 1836 um, think about what did they do? What? Uh, how did they do the simple things that we do? Are they different? Are they the same? Um, one of the the most uh, interesting things that I got out of a, a class I took on economics when I was in college was my professor had said people who lived in the past weren't stupid. And that sounds kind of obvious, but we do kind of have a uh, pretension of living in the 21st century that, oh, clearly we know more than those people who lived in the past. A lot of times, the things they did, they had really good reasons for. And you kind of have to put yourself back in that mind frame Uh, to say, why would they have done this? How would this have worked? 
where would they have gotten the supplies? How would they have dealt with their neighbors? How would they have uh, gotten food? How much of it would they have to grow themselves? And, and it really helps you when you have other people talking in that time frame to put yourself back there too. Now, it isn't always the case where you can... Um, it isn't always the case that the person's interpretation is going to be exactly the right one you need at the time. Sometimes uh, people get too frozen to a script and don't really get into the working with living, living history and to try and make it meaningful at the place you are, which is what a good interpreter does. Um, for example, we were at uh, a place, an, another site that's actually overseen by the Minnesota State Historical Society that did the wonderful historic forest. Well, it was actually in that same trip uh, that was just awful. We got the the most number of photos of the, what not to do from the site. And I'll spare them the embarrassment of saying which one. But one of the worst things uh, that we ran into was the woman who was interpreting the garden, which was fine, but uh, her entire interpretation was she'd pick a bit of a plant or point out a plant and say, uh, oh, do you know what this is? Now, we got, I was there with my with my mother, and we got every single one of the plants that she named right. Clearly, we had some information about garden plants. Now, a good interpreter, after they did a couple of those and we were absolutely right all the time, might have said, expanded her interpretation and said uh, something, started talking about when uh, these had started to grow or the difference in varieties or uh, the difference in soil or something like that, or how they were planning to use them in cooking, or, you, you know, the, it would expand it. But she used the same exact program she used on the school kids. And uh, on adults coming through that had a lot more knowledge in those school kids. So while interpretation can be really helpful it can lead to some frustrations. You don't always run into good interpreters. And sometimes it takes a little bit of patience and a willingness uh, to play the game and to kind of change your mindset that some visitors in a hurry stopping by on vacation may not always have. But I think a well-done living history site whether it's just something that demonstrates things with, with uh, third-person interpretation or if it's a place that uh, allows you to have people interact with a first-person character, whether somebody just every day or somebody famous, or if you get to the a place where you are... Uh, actually involved in an immersion program, interpretation can really 
be the making of the experience. Um, just it, Shakespeare said uh, that the the past is another country, and just like if you were someplace in um, Prague or Russia or India or Japan, you might want an interpreter along to help you know the difference in language, the difference in customs, to help you understand what you're seeing. That's also true of a historic site. And if you get good interpretation, as opposed, uh, rather than to having a static site, it will really help you understand what you're seeing, understand the meaning behind what you're seeing, and it will actually help you see more because, uh, as an example, when I did the training at uh, the Baroque, the Loring's Water Museum in Baroque, one of the things I had uh, the people who were being trained do was ask to describe what was on a bureau after they had walked by it. And the things they knew, they pretty much remembered, but the things that they didn't know what were, they just kind of blocked out. It's like when you suddenly learn the meaning behind a new word and you start seeing it everywhere. You can also have that happen when you learn the meaning of an object. So interpretation is a great thing. And if you get a chance to go to a site that's doing any kind of living history or first-person interpretation, I strongly recommend that you do that. To get a list, you want to go to uh, ALFAM, which is the Association of Living History Farms and Museums website, or MUMSI, which is the Midwest Open Air Museums Coordinating Council, both of which have lists of members' organizations. And I hope that you will try to stop at a living history site. Thank you. 